0: Tyranny was broken by the sins of the father, and his shepherds finally ceased to roam, seeking instead the simple peace found in the comfort of heart and home. All eyes now turn to his heir and son who forged their home with his power. Will he be strong enough to lead them in this, their darkest hour? Welcome back to the Lost Tribe, Darkest Hour. As always, I am the author and your humble narrator, Peter Ivy. If you are enjoying this podcast, please follow and subscribe to help me keep bringing the story to you. Thank you for listening, and let's begin. Chapter Twenty-Eight. The transway flew by Jules' vision as she gripped the handles of the upright control stick that protruded from the edge of the disc that she stood upon. The robe that Henry had given her was so heavy that it barely flapped in the breeze as they sped along. It didn't block out the noise, though. The gearbox underneath the disc gripped the sides of the ground rail, taking in the steam that spun the pneumatic drive that moved the gears at a rapid rate. She gritted her teeth as the whining of the disc and the loud whirring of the gears assaulted her ears. Henry was in front of her on the rail, and Tagum was behind her. Not far up ahead, the city of Cathedral rose out of a ring of smog that hung midway up the tall, dark spires that made up the perimeter of towers around the outside of the city. The towers were blade-like, with notches cut into them from which guard stations protruded. Henry pointed at them. "'The only things that fly here are the ones licensed to the city,' he shouted above the din of the machines. "'Those towers are armed with flame cannons.' "'I know!' Jules shouted back to him. "'One of them tried to waste me last time we went to ground here.' Henry shook his head. I'm sorry, I keep forgetting. Every time I look at you, I just don't see that person. Well then... Hey, I didn't mean it that way. Just taking a bit of getting used to is us all. Jules shook her head, dismissing Henry's comment. The grind rail stopped a few hundred meters ahead, terminating in a platform. Beyond the platform, the city gates stood. They were set of pillars sixty feet or so tall, square-shaped and widening at the base. They also had guard stations near the top. Each arm of the flame cannon was swimming back and forth looking for trouble. The doors to the city were huge, almost twenty feet high and ten feet wide, made of bronze and each bore the intricate silver wheel design of a cathedral city emblem. The doors were closed and looked like they'd been swing, but receded into the pillars instead, some giant mechanism. In front of the doors, the guardians of the city proper, the Breakers, stood in deadly silence. They were heavily armored, and their arms and legs were given extra strength by steam-powered armatures that were built into plated armor. Venting out of the suit through a pair of back-mounted tall vents. In their fists, they bore heavy iron maces or flails. Their heads were enclosed in a helmet with a faceplate shaped like a downward-facing chevron with an eye slit. They didn't look very inviting. Jules eased the throttle back, slowing her disc down as Henry had shown her. The platform was rife with cargo loading and offloading machines of all type and description. Part of the platform where they would be stopping was loaded with lines of people. Instead, waiting to mount long glass enclosed cars that would take them back down the rails and away from the city, the lines were moving well, with conductors standing by the transport urging them along. The people waiting to depart made up an odd mix: men and women in simple robes and rebreathers, not like what the three of them were wearing, stood in the same line as the more well-off people, whose robes were tailored, form-fitting, and decorated with intricate designs and patterns. Those people also had reshaped the rebreathers in an ornate face mask to fit in several different expressions, chased in gold and silver. The ruddy light from the sun gleamed off the masks, giving those who wore them a hellish, evil demeanor. As Henry drew close and stopped at the platform, he seemed to be paying very close attention to the crowd. What? What's wrong? Henry turned to Jules and shook his head very slightly. Do exactly as I do, he said as he drew closer to where they had stopped. No sudden movements. Henry indicated with a nod of his head behind them, toward the doors, where two breakers were standing. They were looking towards their platform and speaking in low voices to each other. Henry stepped onto the platform and reached over to the control stick of his disc. He pressed a button along the side of it, and the stick collapsed the in sections into the disc itself, the throttle folding into the surface. He lifted the disc back from the rail and tucked it under his arm. Jules and Takum did the same, slowly and deliberately, out of the corner of her eyes, she saw the Breakers start to move towards them. She could hear the wheezing of the armature as little puffs of steam rose out of the vents in the back. Henry turned to walk to meet the Breakers, motioning for Jules and Takuma to follow. The Breakers were nearly a foot taller than even Takuma, and their long shadows fell on all three companions as they loomed to block their way. Jules tensed. Henry lifted his goggles off and onto his forehead, giving Jules a sidelong glance. In that glance... Henry seemed to say all she needed to know. Don't do it. He turned back to the breakers, his head held high. The breakers leaned in their helmets, turning from side to side, examining them, assessing them. Henry held up his head abruptly. Both breakers raised their weapons. Your scrutiny is unseemly. Cease and be at rest. The two seemed to speak as one, finishing each other's thoughts as they spoke. Our purpose diligent. Our intent on the purpose. Your intent. Our Uncertain. Uncertain. Travelers from Foundry, artifices by trade, bodyguard and assistant in tow. The incident seemed to be drawing attention from the crowds in the line. The nobles were watching closely, their masks showing nothing but their frozen expressions. The regular folk were trying not to see what was going on, most turning their gaze to the ground in effort not to invite trouble. Henry turned slightly away from the crowd. Identification, Identification. imminent, unwarranted, suspect. The Breaker's armor whined, the armatures pumping power through the limbs. A gun of steam erupted from each suit. Jules prepared to spring into action. Takum flexed his great arms. Hold! Identification imminent! Henry slowly set his disc onto the ground and stood back up. He undid the clasps of the collar on his robe and pulled the simple shirt below aside to unveil the bearskin over his left breast. There was an intricate design tattooed onto his skin in some kind of metallic ink. There were small operations around it, and the flesh was slightly paler. At the sight of it, the Breakers lowered their weapons. One of them took out a device and scanned Henry's flesh. They nodded to each other and lowered their weapons. Recognized. Damned. The Breakers turned to look at each other. They stepped aside but did not take their gaze off him. He did up his robe and took up his disc. He stuck his goggles back in place and started moving, quickly, to the gate. Jules and Takum followed. Jules looked at a who shook his head in dismay. She ran to catch up to Henry. What was all that about? He didn't cease his pace. Well, we're on a schedule now. We can't afford to slow down. Why? Because Henry Davenant, proclaimed deviant, rogue artificer, and mass murderer, has returned to Cathedral. Chapter 29 the bird with the purple eyes flew and circled above us as we followed it across the plains of snow and ice. To the north, the land would end soon as the cliffs overlooking the abyss. To the east, the plains became a valley, the Elder Way, that sheltered a forest of tall evergreens. To the west rose the forbidding peaks of the Shatterfell Mountains. To the south, Anhar waited with his army. The wind and snow were coming across the open plains with fierce determination. Rogda and his men made their way across with stoic calm, now set on matching their hardiness. It had been a long time since the days when I hunted with the Taroshi, and I had gotten used to the warm days and light breezes at home. I didn't want to use up any power and necessarily keep myself warm, either. The Taroshi kept pace with me out of respect. Raghda was at my side as the bird began to turn to the northwest. I turned to follow, but Ragda grabbed my arm and motioned for me to squat. I followed his lead. Why are we stopping? Rogda looked towards the west, squinting hard with one scarred eye. The bird flies to the beak, and it flies to the wound and the hollow. I looked over to where our path was leading. I had forgotten so much about that. The traitor's road. Cursed. Dangerous. How far can you go with me? Frogda shook his head. My men will not take the course of a wound. I will protect you. My power will keep us from harm. We don't even know if that's where the bird's going. Rog turned and looked at each of his men. Each of them nodded his head in turn as his gaze fell upon them. We go with you, as far as the wound. I sighed, wishing that I had maintained a better relationship with the Tarosio over the years. I needed them to trust me and forget their superstition. So it will be, then. We rose and took after the bird, which had been circling, waiting for us. As we made our way towards the mountain, our path had returned toward the northwest. There was no doubt that it was now heading toward where the shatter sloped and dropped away into the deep, chill depths of the chasm the Tarosha called the Wound. At the very edge of the slopes, a path had long ago been cut into the side by the Tarosha to make a detour west around the mountain, along the course of the Wound. It had always been gravely dangerous for the less experienced traveler, being only a few feet wide at the extreme and sometimes much less. Avalanches were also a common risk, and quick thaws during what was laughingly called the Spring in Tarosia could create washouts that could cut off the path entirely. But it was not the hazards of the path that gave it a notorious name. The Traitor's rogue came to be known as such after the failed uprising of a clan of Tarosia a few hundred years ago against their chief. They killed several members of his family, but could not defeat his royal followers. The chief was so enraged and bloodthirsty that he drove them out of the lands in the south. And pushed them as far up north as he could. He stalked them through the deep snows and bitter winds until they could stand it no further, and they fled towards the slopes of the Shatterfoam. Again, he pursued them, driving them to the edge of the mountain, and forced them either to risk the danger of the path along the edge, or the oblivion of the wound. They chose to try and take the path, but their progress was too slow. The chief caught up to the traders. Every few feet with cold-blooded precision, he murdered a member of the clan as they begged and pleaded for mercy. Some jumped to their death, or fell, clutching a mortal wound. Most died where they were butchered. The chief left a bloody trail along the path, saving the leader of the uprising for last. The path ended in a cave that led under a portion of the mountain, and to the other side along the western shore of the great island continent. It was a natural cave, and populated largely by bears and less savory things. That day was a site of a grisly slaughter, as a chief overcame the rest of the traitors, and their leader. It was there that he murdered them in the darkness of the cave. Afterwards, he wouldn't return and with his followers to his home. The despair of the overwhelming emptiness of the cave, and the grief he felt over the senseless murder of his loved ones, moved him to stay, and he prepared himself for death. His last wish was the bodies of the traitors be entombed along the icy walls of the path, facing out as a warning to all those who betrayed a right him. He was also to be entombed, buried in the cave along with his enemies, so that he could watch over return. His followers obeyed his wishes, although many declared him to be not in his right mind. The cave became known as the Hollow, infamous for the terrible feeling of despair that seemed to take hold of the hearts of the men who entered it. The traitor's road became a forbidden place to all the tarotions. I had never gone near it during my time with them. Simi, my old friend and fellow hunter, had only agreed to relate the story to me after several mugs of honeyed ice. To even speak of it was considered ill. Small wonder they didn't want to go anywhere near it. I could feel the winds increasing as we approached the moon. The strong gusts were accompanied by a deep, hollow sound. A river roared, far below in the dark. It was as if it was reaching from those depths to make itself heard, reminding us that it waited more should we fall from the traitor's room. Although I could still fly, it creeped me out a little bit. Drawing closer, I began to see the long curve of the chasm as it went along the edge of the mountain. The path before us was littered with debris from landslides close to the area where the bird was leading us. That wasn't a good sign. The crumbled rock of the mountain lay gray, and gleaming in the snows. The wind scouring the edges clean, like the bones of a murder victim being slowly revealed by the elements, or the maws of something large and monstrous concealed under the snows and daring us to go walking among its jagged teeth. Damn! I must stop letting this place affect me so much. Was I not the master of these worlds? Was I honestly somehow tapping into some kind of superstitious nonsense that the Taroshi hold onto? I kicked over a couple of rocks, exposing them for the simple obstacles that they were. A hundred meters away, there was a broad cut in the edge of the mountains that hung out over the wound. It was slightly taller than a man, and icicles hung over the edge of the distance. The snow before the opening was worn, smooth, and muddy. This sign of the enemy's passing had not been obscured by the snow and the wind as the rest had, for it descended from the ground to make its way inside, and was thus spared the worst of the weather. I picked up my pace. The hunt was truly on now. Patron! I turned to see Rogda and his men standing stock still by the litter of debris. Forgive us, Patriot. We draw no closer, Rogda said, his voice strained. I understand your hesitation, Rogda. It's a shame that I have to leave you all here, but I have to press on. The warriors I seek not only threaten the Taroshi, but many other peoples as well. Stopping them and freeing their prisoner is my purpose. I will make my way along the wound and seek out the cave. Hopefully there will be some answers there. Ragda's expression changed, and his men began to talk among themselves in a disparaging tone. I didn't catch all of that, Ragda. What's the problem? Ragda shouted hoarsely at his men, they quieted down. They would not look at either Ragda or me, though. Ragda was about to respond, but stopped, as if searching for the right word, his brow furrowed and his eyes glancing about as if the answer might have escaped him. The hunt is hard, he said haltingly begs for a harder path. Okay, what the hell does that mean? I could understand the Tarochi most of the time, but I had a feeling this had to do a lot with their beliefs, which I didn't completely comprehend. Everything had a touch of fatalism to it, a sense of doom that had been nurtured and cultivated in this harsh land. What do they want? I really don't understand. I'm sorry. He shook his head and pointed at the traitor's robe. Ah, crap, I got it now. Time is a factor, Rogda. I'm losing a war here against an enemy moving to the shadows. I don't have time to take the harder path. This put me in a very difficult position. I needed to get in there, and get the prisoner out of the enemy's grasp so I could get to Jack. But I also needed to keep the small amount of respect I have with his people. The bird came back to me and cawed loudly before landing on the ground. Rogda's men cursed and gripped the weapons as the bird changed and grew. The only familiar thing remaining being those purple eyes. They grew as well, narrowed as the black shape reformed into a canine. The beast raised itself from the snow and wagged its tail. It barked at me and trotted off towards the traitor's road. I sighed and spit in the snow. <sighs> Some kind of bloody conspiracy. Let me remind you that I have a sword that burns darkness with a mere touch. The dog turned around and barked at me, still wagging its tail. It kept moving towards the entrance to the road. Rogdon and his men chuckled darkly. Yeah, yeah, at least the dog's not afraid of a hole in the ground. Then I left Rogda behind and followed the hound into the gloomy depths of the mountain's edge. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. Keep sharing and subscribing to help me keep bringing the story to you. Come back next week for the next episode of Lost Drive: Darkest